David, thank you. You're welcome. I uh, have to say, of all of the introductions I've ever gotten, David, that one is the most recent. So I am very grateful. <laughs> I'll take that as part. There you go. Thank you. You're welcome. Yep. Um, it is a treat to be back at Faith and Law. Thank you, Lauren, and your colleagues for helping make it work. Uh, thank you all for joining us. It's an uh, auspicious day. Uh, but one that is a perfect opportunity to come together for, for this. Uh, and I have had the treat and pleasure of working with Jeremy Everett and knowing him as a friend and a fellow sojourner in this work of how to build God's kingdom and be a part of that uh, for many years. He embodies Jesus' command to be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. And I think that uh, one of the many things that uh, has impressed me is how he has been able to bridge some of the divisions and be able to reconcile across uh, lines in making sure that those who God has put on his heart are first and foremost. So with that was wanting, Jeremy, for you to start in, in this august gathering space in the House Committee on Appropriations, on Capitol Hill, on this day when policy is the focus, to start us off a little different. Start us off with a picture of who is hungry. When you chose the title, it was yeah. I, yeah. and it was looking at who that person might be. What's a little more of the, the face of hunger in America that uh, we often don't get. So if you yeah. would start us off that way. Well, it's great to be with you here. Obviously, it's, it's always great to be with Max, um, mainly because he gives me a lot more credibility than, than he should. And uh, uh, we've got a few of my, co my colleagues here, and I'm sure they can tell you the truth um, after, after this is all over. But it, I think one of the things when you're, when you're dealing with these large social issues, whether it's human trafficking or poverty or hunger, I think that there are really three core things that you have to do if you're going to have a, a complete understanding of the issue. So first is proximity to the problem, uh, meaning that uh, you, you really you can't solve a social problem from a distance. You really have to be immersed in the issue. P those of us who come from the Christian tradition, you know, you think about Jesus' incarnational witness, like he came and lived and dwelt among us, and likewise, if we are going to deal with these very difficult issues, we need to live and dwell among the people. Hmm. Uh, the second thing is research. Uh, you, you, if, you don't, if you don't know what the research suggests, you're going to do more harm than good. And certainly when you're operating on a policy level like many of you do, uh, you know, you, there's an opportunity to do incredible things uh, with your efforts while you're here. Uh, and you have a lot of influence uh, for, for those of your staff members or working with organizations that are, that are influencing policy. You have an opportunity uh, to do things in, on a scale that most people could never imagine. Um, but with that, you have a lot of responsibility. Uh, so you really need to be steeped in proximity. You need to be steeped in research. And then for those of us uh, who come from a faith tradition, we really need to understand what our faith tradition speaks to that. And so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what those, those look like. In terms of proximity for me, so when I was a junior in college, um, I felt called to the issue of poverty. And so uh, I knew immediately for me what it meant was giving away my possessions and then moving ultimately into inner city neighborhoods uh, where I've largely lived for, for much of the last 20 years. 
so getting to know getting to know uh, my neighbors um, has been has been an important uh, has been important for me to develop, build develop uh, some understanding around the issue. I, I did a race equity training about six six months ago, and the facilitator said. She said, the temptation after you go through this training is that you're going to want to rush to solutions. And she said, you're not ready for that. She said, I need you to rush to understanding. And I thought that was incredibly pointed. And, and uh, that's really when we're, when we're addressing these issues like hunger and poverty, I think that's critical is rushing to understanding. Um, when you bear witness to poverty in the U.S. or wherever you are, uh, you obviously are going to have some certain experiences that leave an indelible mark. Um, one of those for me was uh, my family and I were living and working on the west side of San Antonio. Uh, the west side historically had about 150,000 residents, documented residents, probably another 50,000 undocumented residents. The median income uh, was $19,000 a year per household, and typically you had three generations sharing a home. Uh, we had a neighbor, a woman named Lupe, and uh, Lupe was a fierce advocate for education. She had eight kids. Uh, and she, she knew the ticket out of poverty for her eight children was for them to graduate from high school and hopefully go to San Antonio Community College. That was her goal for her kids. Her husband uh, was the only person on our block that was able to put together full-time hours with one employer. Uh, so everybody else was working, trying to piece together as many jobs as they could possibly find. We didn't live too far from the, from the Riverwalk and all that you like to go to San Antonio to visit. And so many of them worked in the hospitality industry, and so they might get 20 hours at one place at one hotel, and then 20 hours uh, maybe at a, at a little chicken restaurant or a taco shop, and then they might get another you know, weekend job uh, to be able to try to make ends meet. Now, if you're making $7.25 an hour, that's only about $13,000 a year, and so it's not a, not a lot of money uh, to, uh, to really kind of spread around a large household like they had, uh, like Lupe and, and Luis had. She was also the primary caregiver to her two wheelchair-bound parents. Um, her kids went to a school, that, uh, her older kids went to a high school that was the best high school we had in the neighborhood, but it had a 50% dropout rate. And so typically, what we're seeing in these urban, low-income areas is that it really does seem like the deck is stacked against them. Well, Lupe, uh, it wasn't uncommon for them to uh, not have enough money to be able to buy food, and so oftentimes her kids would come down and play with our two older boys, and. And uh, as they would play with, the, uh, with our older boys, my wife oftentimes might bring out a bowl of fruit and they would gobble it up and we knew, especially towards the end of the month, they probably didn't have any food in the house. It wasn't uncommon for their power or their water uh, to get, get cut off. And so the, they were doing everything that they could to get by. The way that their days would work, typically Lupe would uh, send her kids off to school and then she would get her parents situated uh, at one of the local senior centers. Her husband would leave for work and then she would go to the elementary school and to the middle school and to the high school and volunteer uh, because she knew that not only did she want her kids to graduate, but she wanted the other kids to graduate in, in the community. That's how she really had made a name for herself as a champion for education. Well, like any of us, uh, she got an ear infection, hmm. uh, only they didn't have health insurance. And so she waited like everybody did in our neighborhood. She waited until it got too painful to bear and so she caught the bus um, and, and went down to one of the local emergency rooms where she sat in the, in the waiting room all day waiting to be seen, um, but was, was, her name was never called before she needed to get back home before her kids were gonna get out of school. Uh, later that evening when she got home, her eardrum ruptured, hmm. the infection went into her brain, she fell into a coma, and she never woke up. 
The following day, her older, her older kids and her husband were going door to door in our neighborhood, uh, raising money so that they could have a memorial service and bury their mother. Her husband, Luis, sat on my front porch and he just buried his head in his hands and said, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? Oftentimes when we, you know, when we look at the research, when we look at the policy analysis, we oftentimes treat, we, we, we treat Americans like they're in all these different subcategories, right? So we mm-hmm. say we've got 30 million Americans who don't have health insurance. And we've got another group of, of uh, uh, 38 million Americans who are food insecure or at risk of hunger. And then we've got 40 million Americans who live below the poverty line. We treat them as if they're these different categories, but the reality is it's the same family on the local level bearing the weight of all of our broken social systems. They are underemployed uh, and have been for generations. They don't have health care. They don't have food in their house and so on. And so when you're immersed in these situations, you begin to see the real story. For me, you know, I had heard all kinds of things about people in poverty, and so I needed to see it for myself. And I encourage you, uh, as you begin to delve into some serious policy issues, and many of you are are really doing uh, some serious work. I don't think think there's a city in the country that works harder than people do in D.C. And so if you're going to work as hard as you're going to work up here, especially over the next week uh, when you have a lot to do, uh, you might as well immerse yourself in the issue so that you can make sure that you're making the right recommendations to do transformative change for families like Lupe uh, because they're everywhere. They're in every city uh, and they're in every rural community all across the country and it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, Hunger and poverty are a humanitarian crisis largely that we created and we have the capacity to address. Uh, But it's going to take us all working together on the issue. Well, and with that, and in light of what's about to happen at the, the end of this session in helping some of the folks who you might think about in, in a, an urban context, oh, it's, it's the guy on the street corner asking for change who's, who's the hungry one. What has both your experience as well as some of the data that you started to touch on shown in terms of who is hungry? Yeah. And what are some of those causes as opposed to, is it, is it just their fault? Right. Uh, that's a great question. It's a big question. And, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, a, a lot of us come from a preconceived notion that people are poor because they're not working. And, uh, in fact, there was, some, uh, there was a ruling that came out last week around SNAP. You know, it basically said if, if, uh, if you're an able-bodied adult and you're not working, that you're going to lose SNAP um, as an attempt to encourage work, and uh, and so that's kind of the pervasive myth. Now that's a very small percentage of people. In part, remember you're talking about 38 million people uh, that, uh, that that are food insecure. So the number 700,000 seems like a big number. It's actually a relatively small number uh, when you're looking at the larger whole. I think a lot of us think that that uh, poverty looks like the homeless person um, mm-hmm. um, that we that many of you encounter, that we all encounter as we're walking uh, to the metro station. Um, that's a small percentage of the popula- of, of the impoverished population. Typically, uh, people are, are uh, families like Lupe's. Uh, so they're, uh, the number one cause of hunger and poverty in the U.S. is underemployment, uh, mm-hmm. meaning that people are working, they have jobs, they're just not making enough money to make ends meet. The second thing is educational attainment. Uh, so when, uh, people, I think that we, uh, we don't, 
Uh, we don't articulate the, um, we value education, but we don't really articulate uh, in primary school and in, in middle school and high school uh, what it does for your family if you do not graduate and conversely what it does for your family if you do graduate. Uh, if you're going to make it in the United States, uh, you really have to graduate from high school and typically get some kind of additional degree, whether that's a technical uh, college degree so that you have some kind of a certification or a university degree. You've got to have some adi something additional if you're going to move into gainful employment that's likely to move your family out of poverty. There are always exceptions. Um, but the, but those uh, th those are exceptions to the rule, and so I think we've got to uh, build a stronger pipeline around education. I think public education is probably one of our greatest anti-poverty programs that we've ever uh, ever put together uh, as a nation. And so let's don't lose that investment. Let, 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 let's strengthen that investment. Um, when you look at populations who are disproportionately affected, uh, people of color are still. Uh, oftentimes two or even three times as likely to experience hunger as those of us who are in white households. Uh, that's crazy. You know, 150 years after we've abolished slavery, but that still exists. So obviously there's still systemic or institutional racism that needs to be addressed. So if you want to solve the problem of hunger, you've got to solve the problem of underemployment. That means economic opportunity or underemployment. You've got to solve the problem of, of educational attainment. You've got to solve some of our our, our systems that, that do not allow for people of color to rise up through the ranks um, like many of us have been able to do. So uh, th those, are, those are some big issues. What is consistent for families that are experiencing hunger in the U.S. is they're forced to make trade-offs, hmm. meaning that they don't make enough money uh, to get to the end of the month, so they're forced to decide, do they spend money on health care? Do they spend money on food? Do they pay rent? Um, do they pay their car payment? You know, if you don't pay rent, you're kicked out of your home. If you don't pay your car payment, your car's repossessed. So typically what people do is they choose to make food the trade-off at the end of the month. Um, and so they'll either eat a very cheap food or they'll choose to skip meals so that they can get to that next pay period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> One of the neat things in your experience, and you, you write about it in, in the book, is the National Commission on Hunger was established by Congress to take a look and be a bipartisan effort. So yep. when former Speaker Boehner appointed you, I'm curious, what was it that came out of some of that policy conversation that led to yeah. finding some recommendations that everybody around the table could agree on? Yeah. Um, you know, I think... Uh, so that was, a, that was a phenomenal experience. It was a two-year commission. Uh, Frank Wolf, um, if, if many of you probably know Frank Wolf, uh, he, that was his last act as a congressman, was to put forth the legislation to create the National Commission on Hunger. It was a 10-member bipartisan commission, five appointed by Democrats, five appointed by Republicans. There hadn't been a comprehensive overview, like a compre comprehensive deep dive in our federal nutrition programs or even our anti-poverty programs since many of them were created during the LBJ administration. And so uh, that was part of the impetus was to do a deep dive to figure out uh, were our programs, uh, were our different interventions as a federal government working? Um, and if they weren't working, what could we do uh, to improve them? Now, of course, in typical congressional fashion, they wanted us to do that without spending more money, <laughs> and, uh, uh, which was, uh, it caused us to be creative. Now, the first year we spent uh, delving into the research, and we spent most of that time here in Washington, 
and and uh, really, you know, we experienced a lot of the same contention in our room, in, in our meeting room that we see in Congress. So if if a Republican member uh, suggested something, then a Democrat a Democratic uh, member might uh, might disagree with it just partially because it was a Republican bringing it up and vice versa. And uh, we did that and we knew we were committed to having a consensus report uh, at the end to provide to the president and to Congress and to USDA. Uh, and we knew we weren't getting there very fast. And so we decided that we needed to get out of town. And we spent the next year uh, traveling around the country, uh, visiting with individuals who are experiencing food insecurity, uh, meeting with organizations and congregations who are doing great things to address it. Uh, and then holding public hearings so that anybody that wanted to have their voice heard and, and put on congressional record, they had that opportunity. Uh, one of those trips uh, that, that uh, ultimately led us to, to a really positive place was in uh, El Paso. Uh, we went and visited several tribal communities in New Mexico and, and met with a number of state leaders, but we, let, we ended up in, in, uh, in, in El Paso. And, uh, and we had a, 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 an elderly man uh, who had been a professor at Texas A&M, a, a professor named Joe Sharkey. And he had been overseeing a research project on the Texas-Mexico border uh, looking at uh, the Colonias. And so if you've not ever been to the Colonias on the Texas side of the border, uh, they mirror what you might experience uh, in many developing countries. Uh, it's, it's typically people that are undocumented, uh, but not, not exclusively. Uh, and they, they come in and they, uh, they essentially lease land from a landowner and then they begin to build their own house. Now the houses are typically built with whatever people can find. So you might have one wall made of plywood, another made of, of uh, brick, another one made of rocks from the surrounding land. It, it is just a, a very primitive conditions. Many of them don't have running water uh, or electricity. Certainly don't, they don't have paved roads. And so Dr. Sharkey and his colleagues would go door to door uh, checking on the health and well-being of the families that live there. And then they would work with their other counterparts, uh, USDA Rural Development, hmm. to help begin to put in infrastructure. Uh, one of his uh, public health workers went and visited with a woman named Maria, and she asked her a survey worth of questions. And towards the end of their conversation, she asked Maria, she said, do you have any food in the house? And uh, Maria, she said her head just lowered under the weight of shame and guilt, and she guided uh, the public health worker into an area that kind of served as the kitchen and she had a small refrigerator and she opened up the refrigerator door and there was just a little bag of chicken bones and uh, puzzled the public health worker said why is there a bag of chicken bones in your fridge and she said this way when I open up the refrigerator door um, when my kids come home they'll at least see that something's there and when, when he said that you could just kind of look across, uh, you know, the the uh, uh, the row at all the commissioners who are presiding over the hearing, and we all just knew we can surely we can do better than this as a nation, the wealthiest nation in the history of humanity. Surely we can do better than this. Hmm. And it was those experiences that springboarded us to be able to make 20 consensus recommendations. We really did a deep dive in programs like SNAP to better understand it. There's a lot of myths out there about SNAP. And so we needed to really understand SNAP and its economic uh, impact on the local community. Uh, we looked at programs like public and private partnerships, stuff that we spent a lot of time building uh, in Texas and recognizing that, uh, uh, that hunger and poverty are too big for any one agency to fix by themselves, uh, that it's going to take us all working together. It's going to take churches and nonprofits 
and local city government and state government, federal government, all working seamlessly together to address these issues. Oftentimes we act like we can volunteer our way out of hunger and poverty. But these are systemic issues that have largely been around from the history of the world. So we need our smartest researchers, our best leaders uh, in the country and around the world to commit their lives to this cause if we ultimately want to end the issue. And so uh, that's when we began to see springboard out of this commission and we began to see a, more of a spirit of unity. Now it wasn't easy. Uh, I think we spent the last uh, six weeks debating over one prepositional phrase but, uh, <laughs> to put in the report, but, uh, um, but it was, uh, but it was a very meaningful experience, and it showed us that, that bipartisan consensus is possible around these issues of hunger and poverty. But part of it means we have to listen to what's underneath people's perspectives. And so uh, the deputy undersecretary is a friend of mine, uh, Brandon Lipson, and, uh, and he caught a lot of heat because of uh, you know, the, the restrictions around uh, the SNAP program. And so, so it was important for me to hear, hear what was underneath that. Like, wh why, why do you really believe that this is a good plan for people? And, and really hearing why he thinks that it can help move people to work. And then sitting with people on the other side uh, who, are, who are fervently saying, no, this is not gonna be good for families. Uh, who, who it's gonna restrict access to folks that, that aren't able to find a job. Really hearing underneath, why, why is it that they, they, uh, that they believe that? And I think being able to hold these two things in tension and recognize that many of these folks that are working on these issues all care about poverty and all care about reducing it, um, but we've got to find common ground. And if we're going to do that, we've got to build trust with each other. And I think that's ultimately what we were able to do with the commission. Speaking of getting underneath, <clears throat> it's the first name in faith and law. What about the foundation of faith that obviously wasn't part of the National Commission on Hunger, right. but that is the, the lens you bring to the table, that is the lens many of uh, folks here do? Where's that supposed to lead us? How is it that trying to follow Jesus of Nazareth's example leads us to ask these questions? Well, I think for us as people of faith, this is where it starts, right? And... Uh, um, uh, when I when I felt called to the, to the uh, to the issue of poverty, I'd spent my, my junior year really kind of delving in. I, I was a, a third generation Baptist preacher's kid, and uh, we talk a lot about the death and resurrection of Jesus in the Baptist church, but we didn't talk a lot about Jesus's life. Hmm. And uh, and and so for for me, I was like, well, if Jesus really was God's son, uh, and he really did walk the planet for 33 years, who did he spend time with? What did he do? What did he say while he was here? Um, what did he not say? Um, and and, and uh, uh, I mean, that immediately led me to a place like Matthew 25. One of the things about Matthew 25, which the book is named for, mm -hmm. you know, it's when Jesus comes here. Jesus is uh, it's the only apocalyptic or eschatological scene in the entire Gospel of Matthew. And so Jesus has come back, and, uh, and he's presiding over the final hearing. And everybody's gathered, and he begins to separate the people, the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the accused. And as he's separating them, he, he says, you know, I was hungry, and, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. The people that, that he identifies in this situation, he goes on to call them members of his family. Mm -hmm. So the poor, he says, is members of his family. The rest of us are judged 
based upon what we do or do not do to further their cause. That wasn't just extra credit. Nothing in that passage. This is the one time, the one eschatological scene in the entire Gospel of Matthew. And nothing is said of grace, justification, or the forgiveness of sins. What matters is whether or not a person is active with love and cared for the needy. These items weren't just extra credit, but they constituted the decisive criterion for judgment in that passage. So when I read that, you know, it just, you feel compelled. You feel like, okay, this isn't an option. Uh, this is something that we are called to. Uh, Congressman John Lewis spent some time with some of our Baylor students uh, on a trip that our, we bring our Baylor students up here every, every May. And, and he told them that, uh, you know, many, uh, many of the organizers during the Civil Rights era would leave the South not because they were afraid of violence, but because of the monotony of organizing. The day-to-day, -day knocking on doors, signing people up to vote, uh, and, and, and trying to do community development work in the community. And, uh, and, and I'd, I'd, I'd met a, a, a man named Gustavo Gutierrez, who writes a lot in liberation theology, and, he, and he, he, told me, he told me something similar. He said, you know, most, when you look back at social reformers over the course of human history, even just last, the last century, they got one issue. And about Dr. King got civil rights. When he began to shift to the war on poverty, he was assassinated. You know, Gandhi got a free India. Susan B. Anthony got women's rights. Uh, uh, William Wilberforce, who I, I write a little bit about, uh, got to work on the issue of ending the British slave trade. So they get one issue, and they committed their lives to their, that cause. And what Congressman Lewis was saying is that that's part of where this faith tradition, this faith commitment comes in, is that uh, there are going to be times uh, when you want to walk away. Um, but, but it's our faith tradition that roots us in, in this... Uh, uh, in the words of Jesus, I was hungry, and you gave me food, and that is why we commit our lives to the cause of these folks that are often left outside of the social systems that have worked very well for us. Mm -hmm. so, yeah.